The reading is taken from 1 John, chapter 2, verses 7 to 14. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. So, thank you, and um, let me have my welcome. My name is Matt Fuller, one of the uh, staff ministers here. Lovely to uh, see the church family and welcome you if you're visiting. I'm a little echoey. I have got a cold, but I don't think that's just my cold. And uh, maybe we'll uh, calm down a little bit there. Let me um, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. These are up very high behind me. Does that help? Let's pray. Loving Father, you call us your dear children if we know you through Jesus Christ. What a privilege, what an honor. And you speak to your children. You give us the the counsel, the warnings, the encouragement we need. So please be at work as we look at another little part of this letter uh, from the first century that John wrote. We know that you speak it still to us today by your Spirit. Let us understand it rightly. And delight to call you Father. Obey you wonderfully as children to the praise of your name. Amen. Now forgive me for being blunt, I am going to be a bit blunt at this, but um, uh, loving people like you takes a miracle, if I'm honest. I mean really, for, for me, to love you is supernatural when you're ungrateful and thankless and critical, whatever it may be. Now, this is not my sort of my Jerry Maguire moment where I'm sort of um, confessor. Uh, that is true of anyone. For for you to love me is miraculous because I am unreasonable and irritating and forgetful and neglectful. Actually, very starkly, very honestly, this little section of the letter of 1 John, in fact, the whole letter, is very clear that to love people when they're irritating when they're difficult, is a mark of genuine spiritual life. There's a wonderful liberating honesty here in this letter. People are annoying. But rather than just turn away, walk away from them, to proactively love them, that is a mark of genuine 
spiritual life. So you get it here in uh, chapter 2 and verse 10. John puts it this way, whoever loves his brother lives in the light. That is, they're a Christian there. They're walking faithfully with the Lord. Similar themes run throughout the letter, perhaps most starkly chapter 4, verse 12, if you flick over a page. No one has ever seen God, chapter 4, verse 12. But if we love one another, God lives in us. It's obvious. For me to love people like you, it's got to be God's work. For you to love someone like me, you can only do that with God's help. Because I'm not very nice sometimes. Sometimes I am nice. But not always. It's a supernatural work. Now, once it's just to, uh, to, to clarify that slightly, of course, being realistic, some people are easy to love. It's easy to love PLUs. It's easy to love people like us, generally. So if you are a whatever, a 40-something professional with young children working in the centre of town, you should reasonably have quite a lot in common with other people like you. And it's relatively easy in a church setting to to at least be polite and get on well. If you're a 20-something recently moved to London who loves sport and play, and you meet others like you, it's quite easy to get on with them. But when people are annoying, when people are not like you, to love them... It's harder. The old, the old little ditty, I'm not entirely sure where it comes from originally. To love those who are like us is easy. To love those, sorry, to love those who like us is easy. To love those who are like us, that's natural. To love those unlike us is divine. To love those who dislike us is revolutionary. And that's somewhat of what John is saying here. To be to display a love for people who are deeply annoying to you within a church setting, that's got to work in you. You don't do that on your own, it's not natural. Now, of course, you could argue, some would argue, look, it's not uniquely Christian to be able to love enemies or annoying people. I mean, every worldview, religion or, or not, has its sort of heroes of love. They're the Gandhis of the world. They love people. They wouldn't have described themselves as Christians. And of course that's true. But what the Bible is expecting is not just that Christianity would have a few love heroes who just are right out there, a few Mother Teresa type figures who are right out there. But it would be true of all within a genuine Christian church that they'd be displaying love for the irritated. An endemic level is what's expected. There's a power at work within Christians, says John, to help them, enable them to love beyond what is ordinary or natural. Which is good. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, this is uh, fourth or something time. We're in this letter of 1 John. We're uh, going to slowly wind our way through it. And we've said that the twofold purpose, really, of John in writing this letter is he wants to reassure believers and uh, rebuke idolaters. It's one way of putting it. He wants to uh, the believers to know for certain, know for certain that they're genuine Christians because some have left the church and have, they're following a different Jesus. They've made their own little Jesus, a little model Jesus that is less demanding. They're offering a sort of heightened experience, greater knowledge. And John is writing to say, no, you're the real deal. You are genuine Christians if you're living this way. Don't drift off. Oh, and look, those guys who have drifted off, 
but they're not. So there's, there's, throughout this letter, there's this sort of twofold. There's a word of reassurance and a word of rebuke running all the way through it. Try to um, uh, put it this way. Imagine this scenario. Uh, a child goes off to university uh, with uh, two of his best friends. So from London, goes to university in Sheffield, and three of them from school, off they go. And there's tears from mum and a manly hug from dad, and off, off he goes. And uh, halfway through the first year, they hear word from uh, Sheffield University that one of their son's best friends, one of the other two, he's started taking heroin. And he's addicted. And in fact, to feed his habit, he's dealing as well. And so he's encouraging all his friends, saying, come to me, you want to you take some of this stuff? Let me tell you, you haven't lived until you've known the high of this. Now, obviously, the parents in London are concerned, so they write a letter to their son. And the gist of the letter is this, dear son, we love you, but we wanted to write to you to warn you. We're not anxious, because we know that you're a sensible bloke. And you know that heroin will destroy your life. And you know that the high it offers is just a short-term thing. And you know that actually to, to get a good education and a decent career and raise a family, you know that those are honorable things. And you know that that's what you desire in life. And because you know these things, we're confident that you won't go off with your old friend. We're confident that you won't drift off into heroin. So we want to write to you to say, we love you. Don't forget what you know, and you'll be fine. And that is very much this letter of 1 John. John is writing to a, a, a church. Some have left, and he's saying, Look, you know what is true. Don't be thrown by what they're saying. Don't be thrown by the promises of better things. You know what is true. Stick with the Jesus Christ that you've always followed. And that is this letter. That's the spirit of what's going on here. Um, <clears throat> now, we briefly said, let me uh, give you a little more detail. Then we jump in. The overall structure of the letter, there's an introduction, there's a conclusion. But then three times John goes through, there are three marks he highlights as distinguishing the true Christians from these false ones who are departing from the faith. Three marks. It runs a bit like this. Don't worry about it too much. But we've looked at the last couple of weeks at obedience. If you're a genuine Christian, you'll obey. Uh, today we started to look at love. If you're a genuine Christian, you'll love your brothers and sisters. And there's a, there's a, a mark of belief. You'll genuinely follow Jesus Christ, knowing that he's both man and God. And you get that one time, a second time, three times. So we go around the same pattern three times. Um, and that's how the letter works. Okay, let's lose that. Today then, uh, it's a very simple point he's making. A genuine mark of believers is you'll love one another. Because you know God. That's it. It's very simple. So verses 7 to 11 in this section, you will love one another, you genuine Christians. Why? 12 to 14, because you know God. You know him. Very simple. Let's work through it. Uh, chapter 2, verse 7 then. <clears throat> Dear friends, verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. 
Now, this is a slight difference to what we, if you here before, looked at. So, uh, this is a new command, singular, verse 7. Previously, he'd been talking about obeying commands generally. Here, he's focusing upon the one command, to love one another. He doesn't name it specifically here, but it seems fairly obvious he's talking about the new commandment that Jesus gave his disciples. The night before he died uh, in the upper room, John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Now, three quick things about this command. It's old, it's new, it's active. Okay, very quickly. Verse 7, it's an old command. So this is not a new command, but an old command. This old command is the message you've heard. John's saying, come, you've had this since the very beginning of your Christian faith. This is so basic, everyone must know it. Just flick over chapter 3, verse 23. He makes a similar point. This is the command. This is where he defines it. Chapter 3, verse 23. This is Jesus' command or God's command, rather, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. John says, this is the most basic thing about the Christian faith. You trust in Jesus Christ, and you love one another. And those two things go hand in hand. But that, to my mind, is quite striking, that John summarizes that as the basics of Christianity. There's not an Alpha course, trust in Jesus Christ, and a Beta course, love one another. There's not Christianity explored, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then discipleship explored. Here's how you work it out. You love one another. The two are so basic and inherent to Christianity, you can't separate them. John says, if if you don't love one another, I mean, you're really missing the plot as Christians. It's so basic. Uh, a friend of mine, another minister, recently uh, went to a church, moved from one church to become senior minister of a new church, and uh, very quickly discovered that the assistant minister and the youth worker hadn't spoken for two months. They'd emailed to correspond on work matters, but face-to-face, they hadn't spoken for two months. How extraordinary. And so he was forced to say to them, could I just point out, clearly, gently, you need to sort this out. Because, 1 John, chapter 3, 23, this is so basic, this is the most basic command there is, to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, to love one another. If you can't do that, you need to resign. Sort it out, or you both resign. Because I can't have people teaching if they don't do the most basic thing there is, says John. You mad in town? Okay. And uh, they sorted it out. See, John's saying this is so basic. You can't, you can't have any progress in the Christian life if you're not loving one another within a church. It's fundamental. It's an old command. You should have known this since the moment you were a Christian, he says. It's an old command. Second little thing, by contrast, it's a new command. Verse 8. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Hmm. It's true this sin in him and you. Hmm. Now, this is Jesus' word, of course. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Now, it depends upon your temperament, but if you are a sort of vaguely argumentative character who likes a debate, you might have wanted to dispute with Jesus. I think if I'd have been in the upper room 
And Jesus said, a new command I give to you, love one another. I think I probably would have said, not that new, is it? Uh, I've read my Old Testament, and it kind of seems to be there fairly obvious. Your claim for something novel, not, not that new, is it? But presumably the, the newness, as Jesus presents it, is a new commandment I give to you, love one another. How? As I have loved you. With a depth of sacrificial love, willing to sacrifice unto death. I'm giving you a new depth to that command. Oh. Now verse 8 is quite a dense sentence, but... Um, that's, I think, the newness, the depth of it. I'm writing a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. Why? Well, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. What is he saying? John's point is Jesus Christ is the true light. And as he is at work in the lives of believers... He pushes out darkness and light takes over their lives. There is a gradual moral transformation in the lives of believers. It's quite an easy picture to understand, I think. Our, uh, our back garden, or backyard, it's sort of northwest facing, not ideal, but there it is. Uh, which means that um, in August, when the sun's at its height, about midday, about midday, it sort of comes around the houses and light hits the garden. And then for the next couple of hours, it spreads across the garden. Uh, so from midday, really, to about three, it's magnificent. And then, ooh, then it kind of goes again. But you've got this, uh, very obvious, the light comes, and it drives out the darkness. It all fills up. And John is saying, the truth that Jesus is at work in you, verse 8, its truth is seen in him and you, because what is happening, the darkness is passing, the true light is already shining. These things are happening within you. It's taking place. So John is confident. Remember, that's the sort of hallmark of this letter as he writes to believers. He's confident. You will love one another because Jesus is at work in you, driving out darkness, bringing light into your lives. If you understand that, well, the, the next little bit straightforward. Verses 9 to 11. It's an old command. You should know it from the beginning. It's a new command, the depth of it, and Jesus is at work within you. It's active, this command, verses 9 to 11. This is the third time that John has quoted a claim of the idolaters, I think. If you were here last time, chapter 2, verse 4. The man who says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands, is a liar. Chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims, I live in him, well, you have to walk like Jesus did. And here again, verse 9. Anyone who claims, as those who have left you, as those who have left the church, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Oh. What do you make of hate there? It's very strong, isn't it? Anyone who hates his brother. Wouldn't you find it annoying if... Um, Someone came to you after church and said, okay, you have a binary choice here. Do you love me or do you hate me? Oh, I hate it when you do that. You're on my side or her side? Whose side do you want? Oh, do you love me or do you hate me? Well, to be honest, I can't 
be motivated emotionally either of those extremes. I'm slightly indifferent towards you. It would be a fairly rude thing to say. But um, in often cases, I don't love you or hate you. I quite like you or I find you mildly irritating at times, but most of the time you're okay. But love and hate, it's quite strong, isn't it? You either do one or the other. But that is just the way that John insists it is. There's no twilight in his world. There's no middle ground. Because he is black and white in the way he uses language. And for John, it's a matter of orientation. If that is the road marked love, are you walking down that road? And if that is the road marked hate, are you walking down that road? Which way are you orientated? You may not have got all the way to love. You might be sort of a couple of steps. Mildly pleased to meet you. You might have not all got all the way to hate. But a few steps down the road, I'm just not interested in you. You know, you're talking, but really, there's someone more interesting over there, and I'm not listening. For him, it's a matter of orientation. Which way are you facing? I think he's very black and white. He says, you know, there's a real contrast between what this will look like in your life, verses 10 and 11. So whoever lives, sorry, whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. That's good. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. What a contrast. If you are walking in the light and loving, you, you don't stumble as a Christian. If you're trying you know, to, to love your brothers and sisters, you're unlikely to make a moral mistake or uh, have lack of assurance. You're unlikely to stumble in the Christian life. By contrast... If your disposition is uncaring, lack of sympathy, lack of concern, you will stumble. Uh, years ago when I was a school teacher, I once took a trip down a mine. Have you ever been down a mine? They're dark. You'd expect that, wouldn't you? Um, they're very dark. I went down a mine, an old, a disused mine, and there was one of the old miners took us down as a school trip. Uh, 19th century industrial revolution, not the thing that school children love the most, but, um, you know, a mine is quite fun. It things up. Anyway, we went down the mine, and a bunch of 16-year-old uh, children, some of them sort of cocky, oh, down the mine. And um, uh, the miner, he was a nice guy, and he said to me, excuse me, Mr. Funny, do you mind? You know, they're a bit cheeky. Would you mind if I scare them just a little bit? Mm. No. Um... <laughs> And so he said, okay, okay, gather into this section, gather into this section. Now, just to demonstrate how dark a mine is, I'm going to turn off the lights. And there's lights along the wall. And he so he flicked off the switch. He still had a hall, uh, head torch on. You know, it is quite dark. Now, I'm going to turn this off just, just for a little while. Turned it off. And, of course, at first, all the children, And he said nothing. After about a minute. Can we have the lights back on now, please? He said, nothing. And then everyone starts to get a bit nervous in complete darkness. And people start imagining, what's that? There's a rat down here. You know, people start imagining things. Uh, Why'd you step on my toe? I didn't step on your toe. You, st- you stepped backwards. I did not step backwards. You walked into me. And all of a sudden, before it's very long, everyone's sort of arguing. It's like the Lord of the Flies condensed into two minutes. Um... Because in complete darkness, everyone's sort of jostling and and after you know after a while, the sort of the bravest of the boys, please, can we have the lights back on? And the guy flicked them on and said, 
It's dark down here, isn't it? <gasps> yeah, yeah. And um, you're in darkness. You stumble around. John's point is very striking, the way he puts it. Whoever hates his brothers in darkness doesn't know where he's going. I mean, there's an absolute sense in which this is true. Those who weren't Christians are really stumbling in darkness. But in a much milder sense, if your disposition is uncaring, you don't really love anyone at church. You're pretty self-absorbed. John says you're stumbling around. Your judgments about yourself will be warped. Your judgments about other people will be warped. You become incredibly defensive. Someone comes up to you and says, Oh, great to see you. Haven't seen you for a while at church. Are you having a go at me? No, just saying it's nice to see you. That, that's all it is. Hi, Jeanette. Um, would you mind helping out on the, uh, the coffee or, I don't know, crash or, or something? You have no idea how complicated my life is. You are so insensitive. Oh, sorry. I... Sorry. You just get warped. You just you don't see things clearly. You stumble around. If you're not loving people, your self-awareness goes a little haywire. By contrast, then healthy Christians will love one another, says John. It'll happen. Not just loving people like us, but an ability to love people not like us. This is a great summary. One chap wrote, if we can care for the tiresome members of our churches, those who provoke us, irritate us, take us for granted, never listen to us, then we know that God is supernaturally at work in our congregation. Ever feel like that? If we can care for the tiresome members of our church, the ones who provoke us, irritate us, take us for granted, never listen to us, then we know that God is supernaturally at work in our congregation. That's what John's saying. Just a wonderful honesty here. People can be tiresome, foolish, and self-centered. We can all be that at times. But to love someone when they're acutely like that, that's the power of God to do it. Now, um, just uh, uh, four quick ways, four practical ways. I think this works in the letter of 1 John. It can be very brief on these because when we come to the respective passages, we spend a lot more time on them. But four practical outworkings of love for others that I see in 1 John. Uh, the first is joy is tied to others. We talked about this in chapter 1, verse 4. Do you remember this? John writes to make our joy complete. He says, I can't be happy if you're doing badly spiritually. I have tied my joy to you. With, the Christian churches are like a three-legged race. If you fall down, I stumble. Your joy is tied to others. You can't listen to someone here on a Sunday morning who says, I'm really struggling, and say, oh dear, and then walk out the door and forget them. No, joy is tied to others. You'll pray for them. Remember them, ask them how it's going. Joy is tied to others. Uh, second mark of outworking of love, uh, material care. So uh, chapter 3, verse 17, just read it really, we'll, we'll come to it in a few weeks, but chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? It's very simple, clear. There'll be material care. A third little mark, there'll be spiritual care. So for example, chapter 5, verse 13, 
chapter 5.13. John says, I write these things to you, this letter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's as close as he gets to a whole purpose for writing the letter. A love for one another will have a spiritual concern. We'll care about how people are doing with Christ. So someone says, oh, you know, my kids are past their, their exams, their, their A-levels, their baccalaureates. Great. And they're going off to university. Great. And how can I pray for them? Their spiritual concern, not just material ones. And fourth and last, there'll be prayer. There'll be prayer. So, for example, chapter 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should pray. He should pray. Don't worry about what it means. Just the point is pray for one another. We'll get there in a few weeks. Pray. Uh, I've mentioned before, one of the things I enjoyed reading over the summer was a biography of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor uh, in the Second World War. And uh, I I filed this away because I knew... um, we get to this eventually. But here's his comment on praying and what a difference it makes to whether you love or hate someone. He put it this way, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. Intercession means no more than to bring our brother into the presence of God, to see him under the cross of Jesus as a poor human being and sinner in need of grace. See what he's saying very simply? If you're struggling to love someone, pray for them. Pray for them. It's really hard to be irritated with someone when you've prayed for them every day for a week. We'll get to them all in turn. But those are four marks, it seems to me, that John has in his letter of loving one another. Your joy is tied to others. There's material care. There's spiritual care. There's prayer. I'll say more detail when we get to them. Love one another. You'll love one another, says John. But you've got to be realistic on this. Um, You can't love everyone in church to the same degree. You can't have the sort of emotional commitment to everyone. I guess primarily it'll be within home groups. There's a manageable number to really commit to love. Of course we'll have friends outside of that as well, but John says this this is basic. You've known this since the beginning. It's as basic as Jesus died for you. You'll love one another. And he says, dear friends, I know you'll do this because, very briefly, 12 to 14, because you know God. You know God. Now, very briefly. <clears throat> this section then, um, uh, well, let me read it, uh, 12 to 14. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you've known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. Okay, three groups he addresses twice. You see that? Children, fathers, young men. Personally, I think that's a stylistic device. There's some debate on that. But dear children, he uses 14 times in the letter. That's generally generally how he refers to his audience. 
And so I think this is a stylistic device, and he's writing to fathers and young men so people don't feel patronized, perhaps, by being called children. I don't. But I think this is a message for the whole church. So don't be hung up on the age categories or the gender that is all male here. I think this is dear children. He's writing to everyone. But anyway, here are three encouraging descriptions of all believers. We are, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a child with sins forgiven. Verse 12. You're a child with sins forgiven. So John says, don't don't hear my comments on love one another and think to yourself, I'm not very loving. Therefore, God can't love me. Don't think that, says John. That is completely wrong. Rather, think to yourself, God loves me. God loves me. I'm a child of the living God. Therefore, I can love others even when they're unreasonable. Because I don't have to fight. You know, someone says something in a conversation and it's silly and they put me down and it's belittling. But I don't have to replay it in my mind because God loves me. So really, what does it matter? We're all sinners. They said something daft. I can forgive them. Think that way, says John. God does forgive your sin. So forgive the sins of others. Your children with sins forgiven. Your fathers who know Christ. So verse 13, I write to you, fathers, you've known him who is from the beginning. Well, chapter 1, verse 1, that's Christ. You know Christ. You know him. Now let that affect you. You know the living God. You know, sometimes you have to go to, um, you're obliged to go to a party or a conference with work, and you don't know anyone. And you, oh, and you wander in, and there are people chatting, and you look around for a face that you know. Anyone. No one. Ugh. That depends upon our temperament. Then if we're confident, we sort of barge into conversation, hi, I'm Matt Fuller, and you sort of interject yourself, even if people don't want you. And if we're less confident, we sort of shuffle around the outside and pick up some literature and look at it and think, oh, how long have I got to be here? Um, no one's interested in me. It depends upon. But you, you have those miserable things, you go along and you don't know anyone. But then, the host of the party, the, the bloke who's called the conference, says, Oh, Ian, Ian's here, brilliant, Ian's here, puts his arm around you, says, Oh, everyone, have you met Ian? He's so, he's so, so wonderful. And all of a sudden, it's a different party, a different conference. You feel a little more at home. You don't feel quite so left out, so lonely. John is saying, you know the Father. You know the Father. Therefore, you can be generous in how you treat other people. Don't think, oh, they're ignoring me, they're belittling me. Be generous. You know the Father. You know the host. You know the Father. And lastly, yes, yeah, so your children with sins forgiven, fathers who know Christ, and youngsters who've overcome evil. So right at the end, verse 14, I write to you, young men, you're strong. The word of God lives in you. You've overcome the evil one. Jesus Christ is working within you to drive out darkness, to bring in light. He does it as the word of God dwells in you. A little reminder there. You have all you need, says John. That's why you can love one another. It's very straightforward, isn't it? I mean, how simple can it be? Love one another. How easy is it to do? Well, okay. 
But don't you want to be in a community like this? I mean, I do. A place where this really works. There's honesty here. Church is not a place just full of nice people. All nice people at church. A fully functioning church is full of sometimes nasty people who still love one another, even when they're very irritating or neglectful. That's the power of God. Don't you want to be in that sort of community? Don't you want God to create that within us as a church? John says he will. He will. Remain in him. Dwell on what you know, and he'll transform you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we all sit here and know we fall short. We don't love as we would desire to. We are uh, impatient with one another and we can be irritated by one another. But Father, thank you that there is a supernatural power at work within us because of your Son, Jesus Christ, if we know him, to change us, to enable us to love one another. And we pray that we would indeed be marked by that as a community. Loving one another, even when it's hard. And no great joy in recognizing that is you at work to enable us to do so.